0: no one can survive this. It's a life-threatening winter storm in Labrador, Canada, just on the edge of the Arctic Circle. I'm not in Labrador. I'm at home, very far away from this storm, and I'm bundled in my warm-down comforter, wanting to complain about something, but feeling the justification for any complaint rapidly draining away. The days-long storm, horizontal snow, and blistering winds are on my laptop screen. I'm watching the History Channel's hit show, Alone, where a group of wilderness experts are dropped into the toughest, most remote places in the world and tasked with one thing. Survive for as long as you can with only your skills, a few tools, and your mental stamina. And right now, I have no idea how any set of skills, tools, or mental toughness could withstand the kind of storm that's blasting the rocky region of coastal Labrador where that season's contestants are hunkered down. You know how we always talk about the importance of grit? Well there it is, accepting Mother Nature's power right there on my screen. And there's one participant who's particularly captivating and whom I can't stop thinking about. Wonia Thibault. She's 5'4", 40-something years old, and through every mind-numbing, body-breaking challenge she's faced in this season of Alone, which, by the way, was called appropriately Alone Frozen, Wonia has been smiling and grateful. I think that's why she won.
1: And what a gorgeous morning! Oh my goodness, today I have achieved my goal. Day 50, alone in Labrador, getting pounded by weather. Oh my goodness. But wow, here we are. Hard to wrap my brain around it all.
0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti.
1: Onea Thibault has
0: been on two seasons of Alone. She's survived the longest cumulative time solo in the wilderness of any contestant who's appeared on the show thus far. And in her new book, Never Alone, A Solo Arctic Survival Journey, Monia sums up what carried her through this way. Quote, Let me absorb all the joy and wonder that I can hold. And Wonia Thibault joins us now. Wonia, welcome to On Point.
1: Thanks so much, Magna. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Now, your book is about your experience on season six of Correct. Alone, but I do want to talk with you for a minute about uh, that storm <laughs> that I described, <laughs> that was in Alone Frozen. Can you tell me what it felt like, like bodily, to, oh my to experience
1: that? yeah well it was pretty intense i will say out of 123 days out on alone between season six and frozen it was the one time that really felt like a real survival moment because and i say moment but that was a three-day storm because the weather was truly felt life-threatening it was so intense but also what they have there is called a cyclonic weather system with literally like cyclone winds thus the snow is not just horizontal it was sometimes vertical but from the ground up because i was on steep ocean cliffs right facing mm. the atlantic ocean and so the weather would hit those cliffs and shoot upward. So literally snow shooting up under my pocket. It was unbelievable. And because those winds were so fierce, they were also driving my smoke back down my chimney. So Uh the scariest thing about that storm was the fact that midway through it, I started experiencing obviously a lot of smoke inhalation from the smoke, but then this incredible searing pain in my eyes. And it turned out, as I discovered later, that it was from having some seaweed burning in my fire. Mm. And the Seaweed was saturated with salt, of course, which is sodium and chloride together. And when they burn, they separate. So it was actually chlorine gas that was gassing me in the face. And it made me go blind in the middle of the most horrendous storm I've ever experienced in my life. And it also happened that that little yellow device that has our GPS and has the emergency tap out button, that was dead and I was unable to charge it. So in the scariest moment that I had out there, blind and unable to do much for myself. I also was unable to call for rescue, which was also kind of a moot point because it would have taken them many days to even be able to get to me because they couldn't come in a storm like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah no one's going to take a, a, a chopper out moment. in that storm. <laughs> yeah. And the next morning, the the storm was so intense that it actually shook my walls apart a bit. And when I I think this must have been before the blinding incident because the storm was three days. But at some point in that storm, I woke up and there were Icicles driven horizontally, like sticking exactly horizontally through my shelter walls, because of the temperatures and the force of those winds. So it was pretty intense.
0: Wow! So you're feeling it <laughs> in your body. Your hand constructed shelter is doing the best it can, right, to stay to stay standing. And you've got this blindness problem. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, we should emphasize for people who haven't seen any season of Alone that you truly are alone. Right. I mean, there you can tap out and, and the show's producers will come and get you. But other than that, there's no one for, I don't know. Many, 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 many miles. So in, in
1: the middle, it's all self filmed. So there's no self-filmed. camera people. Exactly. We are doing all of the filming, which turns out is remarkably challenging when you barely have use of your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> we should say
0: that the blindness wore off, though. After a while, it
1: did. Yes, yeah. and it was. It wasn't a complete. I could still see kind of blurry shapes, but it was just insanely painful to have my eyes open. So it was the combination of the poor vision and the pain that made it really hard even to open my eyes.
0: Okay, so. So what I want to know is you can have skills. Your hands can be very skillful, right? Your shelter can stay standing. Um, You can even eventually understand what might have temporarily taken your sight. But as the world is shaking around you, right, with the full force of Mother Nature's power,
1: how does your mind and your spirit cope with that? That's a great question. The reality for me, both in that situation and a lot of my time on Alone, was that there's really nothing you can do but surrender and trust and the more you spin out and the more you let fear get a hold of you, that actually lowers your chances of survival because it puts you in fight or flight, which means you are going to be making poor decisions. It's going to be elevating your heart rate. It's going to actually be burning through your few remaining calories a lot faster. So there's really no point in it. So I believed that the landscape and the weather did not want to do me harm. And I knew that there was nothing I could do and no rescue possible. So I just chose to let go and trust. And I burrowed into my sleeping bag, which luckily was a minus 40 degree (laughs) down sleeping bag. And I just let myself fall asleep and, you know, tried to, tried to plug my ears so the howling winds wouldn't wouldn't shake me awake, but it made me very glad that I had chosen to build my shelter into solid rock. I was banked against two corners of my shelter were granite. So that that incident made me very, very happy that I had made the choice that I had because I could see any other shelter being blown over or blown off the cliffs into the ocean or some such thing.
0: Yeah. I wonder, where did that sense of trusting in nature and letting go uh, in a moment like that come from in you because a lot of other people, um, even some on like every season of Alone, they they instead hunker down, right? And they sort of take this me versus nature approach. But yours is like the exact opposite.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that I studied natural sciences. So I'm, I've am i always been a biology nerd from the time I could remember. I, love I started loving spiders as one of my first memories, playing with the daddy long legs in the corners of the shower <laughs> and loving plants and birds and then going on to study those in in my college years. So I think the fact that I strongly identify with nature. It's not just a green blur to me, it's individuals that I know and value. That's a big part of it. And, but you know, that innate trust, that's a great question. And I honestly, I can't say exactly where it came from, but there's something about deep immersion in nature that puts you in a really different mindset becomes really hard to live in your abstract brain, which is what we mostly do as modern humans, right? Most of our world isn't taken up with things like food, shelter, and basic survival. But when it is, you're just present in the present moment, and it's like a type of meditation. You know, logically, there is nothing that you can do to change things, so why would you continue to fight them Mm -hmm. in that situation?
0: But was there ever a time on Alone, Frozen or Season 6 of Alone... Where even your faith in nature in your faith in nature and your willingness to let go was truly tested
1: <laughs> um, I want to say no, but there there were two incidences, and I write about this in the book where i was in a place where I had a harder time maintaining the positive mindset that really characterized most of my time out there. And it was the two times on season six that I got hypothermic. Mm -hmm. And It was amazing to me how it affected not just my body, I mean, obviously I had less use of my hands and of my body in that situation, which was frightening, but it also really affected my mindset. It was the only time on season six that I felt deeply lonely, that I felt particularly sad. There was something about losing my body's capacity that did make my my mind and my emotions start start to spin out on me a bit. And it was really fascinating. And I was really grateful that I had that happen early on before the cold was really deep and really dangerous because it meant I was very careful. I completely changed the way I did things. I wouldn't let myself work on uh, tasks where I was not moving in the dark or if it was really cold or, you know, things that I had to have my gloves off. I just became much more cautious to avoid going through any of that again.
0: Mm. Well, today we are speaking with Wonia Thibault. She's an ancestral skills instructor, and she has appeared on the History Channel's hit show Alone twice and cumulatively holds the, the most number of days spe- spent alone in the wilderness on that show. And she's got a new book out called Never Alone, A Solo Arctic Survival Journey. We'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point.
2: Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash onpoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna
0: Chakrabarty, and Ronia Thibault is with us today. She's appeared on two seasons of the History Channel's hit show, Alone, and she has a new book out. It's called Never Alone, A Solo Arctic Survival Journey. And by the way, we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Now, Ronia, it suddenly occurred to me that, um, you know, I'm one of those alone obsessives who've seen every <laughs> episode of every series and, like, watched all the um, YouTube videos that each participant puts out, too, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But there are probably a lot of people, or maybe at least some, who haven't seen the show. So how would you describe what the premise is of
1: it? The premise is that 10 people are selected, and each of them gets to select 10 gear items— So that includes everything that you need to survive, like a sleeping bag, a cook pot, some way to make fire. But the items are very limited. They're not the items that would make it easiest to live out there. For example, not a lighter, but a ferro rod, which is a metal rod that you can strike a spark off of, but then you need to be able to get that spark to catch and create fire. So enough things to make it possible, but extremely challenging to live in the wilderness. And then they are set down either by boat or off and by helicopter in the wilderness, all several miles from one another such that there's no way that they will ever be able to interact with one another. And in fact, there are what are called geofences, invisible boundary lines that the GPS design device has keyed into it so that you have a limited area that you can travel. And it's a competition with the idea that the last one to remain, however long in the future that might be, becomes the winner. Mm. And as you said,
0: you're filming yourself.
1: Correct. The entire it's time. all self-filmed. So mm-hmm. before they drop you in their spot, they've set down a case full of camera equipment, and you need to keep the camera equipment dry and intact, as well as yourself intact, and document the entire journey yourself, which is a very significant challenge in those conditions.
0: Right, because they, the producers even ask you to do things like... I mean, this is still ultimately going to be on television. So I, in your book, you described how they ask you to you know, do things like get the same shot three times from three different angles, (laughs) right? right? And I was thinking, um, well, when preserving calories is a really top priority when you're solo in the wilderness, having to walk the same path three times just to get three camera shots, that had to get a little frustrating.
1: Absolutely. I think the average viewer doesn't realize what a huge imposition the filming is in an already extreme survival challenge. And, you know, it's interesting, and I kind of had an epiphany towards the end of my time on season six, because, you know, I was I was a straight-A set student. I was a real good kid, teacher's pet type. So I absolutely did everything I could to get the best possible footage. And then it was towards the end when my body was seriously wasted, and I realized how many of the calories I had burned through out there went to filming, you know, over and over, as you say, and realizing there's no one out there checking on us and probably being so incredibly diligent about the camera work was a distinct disadvantage <laughs> for me out there because I was fairly certain that a lot of the other people probably didn't choose to follow all of the instructions to a T in the way that I had. Yeah. Um... I also want to just
0: point out the obvious that when producers for a loan are looking for future participants, they're not just calling up like random people. Like, no one's going to call me from History Channel and be like, "Hey, <laughs> do you want to
1: participate in a loan?" Well, you know, I mean, we he, could work on it, <laughs> Man, If you really have your hat set on it, we could figure something oh, out. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, oh, <laughs> um, don't tempt me. But
0: um, so, I mean, the folks who participate are true experts. I mean, they most of them have dedicated their lives to forming. Uh, and uh, these sort of wilderness skill sets or ancestral skills, um, as you call them, and also even they're they're just in a sense living that way, if not totally isolated. So
1: don't do this say at that home, that's right? N- Certainly yes. Everyone who goes out has has a strong skill set. But they're really across the board. There I mean there have been people on the show who were, you know, lots of construction workers, white collar mm. folks, lots of different lifestyles and I would say that the folks who are actually living the wilderness skills as their lifestyle are a much smaller percentage oh, of the participants. Interesting. Oh, some interesting. some it's hobbies, some it's, you know, weekend warriors everywhere in between. But certainly all of them come to the show with a lot of skills and also are assessed and selected based on how they are able to demonstrate those skills to the producers. Okay,
0: yeah. So there's a minimum amount of skills you have to have. Exactly. I, I, you know, and, now, and now that you mention it, you're right. Actually, some of the— I don't even think weekend warriors is the right um, <laughs> phrase for them. But they're like you said, there's some white-collar workers who are spending a lot of time, though, also developing these skills. And they do fairly well, although I think I remember in one season— There was a gentleman—it's probably a good thing I don't remember his name—who beforehand was talking about how, like, he was as tough as a bear but then tapped out after, like, on the first day Um, because he was— being alone
1: was actually quite terrifying. Now, I would say that typically the people who go into it with the biggest ego and talking biggest are the people who last the shortest amount of time up there. If you put yourself up on a pedestal, you're giving yourself a long way to fall. And then you already have taken such a hit if you went in with a lot of ego that it feels harder to recover. Whereas if you go in with humility and you didn't build these big expectations, then you're just going to, you know, get back up and brush yourself off if you take a big hit. Yeah. Yeah, so
0: I was actually going to wait a little bit later to ask you this question, but given <laughs> what you just mentioned, I saw a pattern over the. I guess that what there's been nine seasons of Alone plus Alone Frozen. I haven't mm-hmm. actually I haven't seen Alone like the Skills Challenge one yet. But anyway,
1: it's uh, a very different premise.
0: Yeah, yeah, it doesn't interest me as much as the the core sure. Alone show. But um, what I saw was that not all of the men. But a lot of the men early on are like, I'm going out there. I'm going to tame Mother Nature. You know, I'm going to show her who's boss and I'm going to control the land and I'm going to survive 200 days, (laughs) like whatever. (laughs) They had that sort of man versus nature attitude. And And you're exactly right. I mean, frequently, even though they might go quite a while, those were the same men who on the show, you see them breaking down, crying, because they just can't do it anymore. Or mm-hmm. or the isolation is too much for them, because I don't think they ever fully considered that, you know, you're going to be truly on your own. But there was sort of a, an emotional fragility that mm-hmm. was hiding behind that super, like, I can control nature exterior. Do you think that's a fair assessment? 100%.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, and if you go in there seeing nature as your enemy, then how are you going to find companionship out there, right? Uh-huh. If you see yourself as that. Other then, well, one, you're setting yourself up for failure because it is impossible to win a wrestling match with Mother Nature. And we're talking about extreme Northern climates. Every alone season has taken place in really intense, difficult situations. So it's, it's pretty naive to think that you are gonna be able to do anything to that landscape. But then you're also setting yourself up for this antipathy rather than that sense of belonging and feeling joy and being fed by this beautiful place so you're setting yourself up in a couple different ways so
0: you actually found companionship in the environment
1: absolutely
0: yeah okay now in in season six which is what the book is about mm-hmm. you you were the runner up in that season you went 73 days correct um, and that was the season where Jordan Jonas won is that is that right yes it was the first season that anyone had ever gotten big game he got the moose mm-hmm. right. yeah <laughs> right yeah um And uh, but you, I mean, like you were runner up, and the the person who wins wins because the runner up taps out, Um, and I I know or gets
1: extracted or for medical reasons exactly.
0: Well, and your body did take an extreme; it was an extreme toll on your body. I mean, you you write that um, in a in. Kind of halfway through the book, there was a a slate of time where there was a particular week, for example, a week and a half. You say you had managed to gather only a few handfuls of berries, seven grubs, and a few tablespoons of birch sap. That's all you ate in a week and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think emotional isolation and the toll that takes and then starvation, those are the two main things that push people off the show. I mean, how did you cope with the starvation?
1: You know, it's really interesting because had you asked me before going on alone how I would handle starvation, I would have said, no, that is not one of my strong suits. I'm not someone who's going to do well with very, very limited calories. So it really surprised and pleased me how resilient I actually found myself to be. And again, I think that that shows one of my strengths being, being 100% in love with that experience. I wasn't there for the competition. I wasn't there for the money. I was there because it was the fulfillment of my life's path. All of my most cherished dreams involved going into the wild to make a life there from the resources around me. So the opportunity to do that and then being in this place it was magically beautiful. I mean, northern lights and golden birch leaves fluttering in the wind against a backdrop of stark granite. It was just jaw-droppingly beautiful. And I found that that sustained me in a way that I had only been sustained by calories in other times in my life. I was able to tap in to what I felt like was a different kind of metabolism.
0: Now, the strict scientist in me would say, like, that was probably just your brain becoming delusional on lack of calories. But, but it took you to this transcendental place, though, is what you're describing.
2: Exactly.
1: I mean, in the same way that the placebo effect actually has a true physiological impact on our bodies, I think that believing that and seeking that type of being fed really did impact my body. Mm. And in fact, I know it did because I had a time in the—as I describe in the book—where— I had been given a weight warning. I was told I wasn't doing well, and I just I started to really focus on that and think, I'm starving, I'm starving. And I felt weak, and I felt less capable. And then I turned my mindset around, and I said, you know what? People do fasts for health reasons, so I'm not starving, I'm doing a cleanse. And thinking about it like that, I felt stronger again. It 100% changed how I felt in my body. So the mind-body connection is one that science is starting to delve into. But I really think that there's something in it that's beyond just what's going on in your brain. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, as we said a little bit earlier, the producers pull people off shows if they if they are doing. Um, They've lost so much weight that their health is truly in danger, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You didn't quite reach that point. Um, You know,
1: what you don't see from the show is that I actually chose to leave when there was a medical check coming. And I felt quite certain that I wasn't going to be able to pass it. Because
0: I wanted to know. You were doing so well, Mm -hmm.
1: right? And you could see that transformative mindset. And I was like, why is she tapping out? Tell me more. Yeah, you know, it was <laughs> so I chose to leave on my 43rd birthday. And I had been going along knowing that getting pulled was imminent. Every every medical check, they had sterner and sterner language about how they were very concerned about me and if things didn't change, my time was limited. And so I kept setting these markers for myself. If I can just make it to eight weeks, if I can just make it to 10 weeks, okay, if I can just make it to my birthday, what a birthday gift it would be to be out here. And it was towards the end of my time when I knew that I had barely squeaked past the last medical check, and another one was imminent. And I just kept thinking, okay, just till my birthday, just till my birthday. And then I had this crazy epiphany moment where I realized that wouldn't be a gift, and it would also not be in line with who I actually am. The idea of staying until other people deemed that I was in so much danger that they couldn't consciously leave me out there Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. Who was I to let other people make that call for me rather than to demonstrate that I cared about myself and my long-term health enough to make that choice for myself. And while I had thought that success would mean staying until the last possible minute, never giving up until I got pulled, I realized, Whoa, no success is making the choice for myself and choosing my health over something as arbitrary as winning, right? That's really a a human created concept, and everything about my life and the way I live it is about doing what's right, not doing what our culture tells us to do and not putting things like money and possessions and winning and status first. So yeah. here was the situation where millions of people were potentially going to be watching me. And was I going to demonstrate something counter to my values in that moment? And then I realized with a medical team coming, I had literally hours to either make the choice for myself and maintain my sovereignty And have it be my own choice versus have me dragged out of there against my will, kicking and screaming. And so I made the call myself because it felt really important to me to demonstrate what was right.
0: Mm. Now, Oneia, it took your body two
1: years to recover from that, though. And then Mm -hmm. you decide to do it all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That was a hard choice. When they called me about Alone Frozen, I was like, oh, man— I have only had my body back for a year now, and oh, <laughs> So it wasn't about the experience that I was nervous. It was about the potential recovery from the experience, because that's something that you don't know the first time. You're very naive the first time about what the long-term ramifications could be. And they're different for everyone. And obviously, they're much stronger for those who stay out a really long time. Yeah. But yeah, that really gave me pause, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) So, and in Alone, Frozen, uh, it, the experience starts later, right, deeper yeah. into winter. you were Later on,
1: than they've ever yeah. launched anyone on a loan, so significantly later.
0: Prep time for building shelters and gathering foods is really, really cut down. You were on And co- there's
1: less food out there because the plants are all dead. The mushrooms are all melted into piles of goo. Exactly.
0: And, and you're on coastal Labrador, so it's cold and wet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then you won. I did. Yes. Yeah. I I have to say, um, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes and we'll talk more about that. But do you know what moved me when you won? It wasn't just that you were the first woman to win a season of Alone. It's that your first, one of your first responses when they said, you know, you made it, you're the last one. You asked, is everybody else okay?" Mm hmm. You you must remember that. I was like, what a remarkable woman. You just, like, had this amazing experience. You were the victor. But your first thought was for your fellow participants and their health and well-being.
1: Yeah, well, I knew how brutal it was out there. I mean, it was touch and go. (laughs) So, yeah, you know. I think that was one of the things that was most appealing to me about the Frozen season was the fact that it was set up so that it wasn't a do it out until the end and you need everyone else to go home in order to win premise it was that everybody who made it to day 50 would win together and we all loved that and we all we made plans for what meal we would eat together day 54 once we figured we'd be better able to eat food again you know we we really went into it from a supportive mindset that frankly was really different than what i experienced on season six the competition thing and the like i'm gonna i'm tougher than you really bothered me. So, yeah, I really cared about those people, and I really wanted them to do well, and I was worried about them because it had been very, very, very challenging.
0: Mm. Well, Wania Thibault is with us today. She's an ancestral skills instructor, uh, and she teaches those skills in classes uh, through her website, Buckskin Revolution. We'll talk more about that a bit later. Uh, and she's the winner of the History Channel's hit show Alone. She won this season called Alone Frozen. More in a moment. This is on point.
2: Did you kill Marlene Johnson?
0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Monia Thibault is with us today. She's the winner of one of the seasons of Alone. That's the History Channel's hit show about surviving in the wilderness. She won Alone Frozen and was the runner-up in Alone Season 6. But her approach is about a lot more than just you know, gritty survival for survival in uh, the wilderness. Monia likes to talk about surthriving thriving or thriving, Uh, with nature. And we're going to discuss that in a second. But she's got a new book out called Never Alone, A Solo Arctic Survival Journey. And Wonia, I just want to play a little clip from Alone Frozen, because as we had mentioned before, on that season, you became the first woman uh, to to officially win um, the challenge, although women had done very well, I would say, in previous seasons um, as well. But here you are. It's day 50, or it's just after day 50, when the production team came to your location in Labrador, Canada. And uh, a producer asked you what it felt like to be the first woman to win.
1: It feels incredible. I'm so, like, I feel so incredibly grateful to be able to represent women in this way and to show the world that we are every bit as capable I've emphasized the heart and the connection and the love and how much being in this place has been a relationship. And I feel like that's something really special that women often can bring. To be an influence for young women, to be a role model for young girls and show them what they're capable of, to be the role model that I wish I had had as a young woman. it just, it's so powerful. It means so much to me. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Wonia, I know in the book um, and in sort of your life's work, because you're you're uh, focused on ancestral skills, you make the argument that being the first woman to win alone shouldn't matter because, you know, uh, our ancestors, all of them had to have these skills regardless <laughs> if they were men, women or or children. Um, but, of course, this show is taking place in the modern world. So talk yeah. talk to me more about what it meant to be the first woman to win.
1: Well, as, as you shared, I had really mixed feelings about it because I felt like on the one hand, it was amazing to be the first woman to win, and it was really important for myself, for women, for humanity to see that. And on the other hand, it felt silly that we have to make a big deal about a woman winning because it makes it sound as if they're not as likely to win, you know? And the reality is that while we haven't had a woman win alone until Alone Frozen, there have also been far less casts. There were no women mm. in the first season alone, and then two women and eight men in the second season, the most there's ever been is three women with seven men. So... We have had a disadvantage just in terms of number. It was never an even playing field in terms of the numbers game. And also most young women are less encouraged to be doing outdoor pursuits, particularly things like hunting and fishing, than most young boys are. So we have this cultural idea that women are less interested and less good at it, but it's really because we have a lot less access and we have a lot less examples of strong women who have done it. So Mm. being a force... Changing that and being able to be that example was amazing, but it didn't do away my frustration that that's the case. Yeah. Well, and also
0: on Alone Frozen, the last three folk, folks mm-hmm. were, were women, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the the last three out of six were yeah. all women. The men were all gone before day twenty. <laughs>
0: Sorry, I, I admire anyone.
1: I don't mean to laugh, but I admire
0: anyone who is able to even last twenty days like that in the in the wilderness. Sure. But it was it was really I couldn't believe it. Actually, I was like, wow, the last three women is amazing. Now I want to, oh, gosh, I need six hours to talk with you, Wunia. <laughs> Unfortunately, we only have like twelve minutes left. Um, listen, you 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 know that uh, obviously you know it's your life we're talking about. That um, this has never been about. Just sort of you being a weekend warrior, or um, you know, trying to be a survivalist, right? Because that's a whole different culture. You've dedicated- correct.
1: I've never identified yeah. myself as a survivalist. I actually really take issue with that. Term.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because you, I mean, you've dedicated decades of your life to a completely different um, mindset mm-hmm. about about nature and ancestral skills and that means you've lived off grid for a long time um, you've you've sustained yourself uh, through you know teaching your classes and I don't know uh, foraging etc I, I think in the book you, mm-hmm. you write that uh, that means for much of your life technically you've lived at the poverty line um, mm-hmm. but you've always been compelled as you write in the book to seek out, being feeling and being wild, and I would love for you to tell the story about one of those moments um, in your life where you felt that you could actually achieve that, and and it's the moment where you come, you write about it in the book where you come eye to
1: eye with a bobcat. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. So I was out on a three night, four day surthrival trip where it was about not just the idea, like, can we survive? Because to my mind, surviving just means not dying, which is why I prefer the term surthriving, right? Actually doing well and enjoying oneself rather than just managing not to die. And it was a really beautiful trip because it was one that I went into with really different intentions than similar trips that I had done before in terms of really being there to connect with the land and to give back as much as taking and recognizing that the natural world misses and needs us as humans living wilder just as we miss and need it. And what really brought it all to a head, and as an illustration of that, was this hike that I did, where it was dusk, and I went out without anything—no, no headlamp, no food, no water—just my clothes, knowing that it was getting dark, knowing that I didn't know where I was headed, but choosing just to trust. And we had had rain the day before, and so there was water in little pools in the rocks, so I was able to pick pine cones and eat the pine nuts. I was able to find greens. I was able to drink water right off of the rocks. And it was really beautiful. And the culmination of the hike was looking out over this vista and seeing this strange thing that felt like a different pattern and was a little off and then realized that it was a bobcat. And eventually having that bobcat look up and notice me And I had actually woken it up because it had been napping. And it looked at me, and as we were staring each other in the face, this bobcat fell back asleep, which was amazing to me because it meant that it trusted me, that it felt safe enough knowing I was looking at it to do the most vulnerable thing it could possibly do and fall asleep. And so I really felt like that was a moment that affirmed the wildness within me and the fact that I was a part of this landscape and recognized by the wild creatures in that landscape as part of it. And it was really life-changing.
0: So tell me more about what it means to to feel wild, though.
1: So I think that it's an interesting concept in today's world because— We now live in these worlds that are so artificially constructed that we no longer are aware of the difference between needs and wants and what it actually takes to keep our animal bodies alive. And so we live in this very different way than any of our ancestors and most of the other animals on the planet, barring domestic animals. And... That we really lose something in that there's something so beautiful about just being in the present moment and actually being in tune with our bodies and knowing that it's our responsibility to make the good choices and have the skills to keep our bodies intact and alive. And it's, it's hard for me to describe in words, but there's something about that that just feels so much more real and important than anything else that I've experienced in modern life. And to me, there's just such a beauty about that. And so erasing that designation between ourselves and other animals, between Mm. ourselves and nature, because I really feel that 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 separation, you know, we're here and then nature is out there, that's what allows us to do all of the terrible things we've done to this planet that are really affecting us as well as the rest of, all living things.
0: Yeah. So, Wonia, you're such a person. You're a person with such profound skills, like actual practical skills, those ancestral skills you've you've um, you've mastered. You, you're the, you're the kind of person that can walk through the woods and see layers of information uh, and understanding of the species all around us, you know, plant and animal that most of us are probably blind to. I imagine that you're even able to like process information through your through your senses your sight smell right and Mm -hmm. and touch that maybe most of us just don't have or don't yet have or they're dormant within us
1: That's exactly it dormant rather than not there yeah so i was wondering though for for those of us
0: in whom that wildness is still dormant do you think it's possible to to feel that that that, that kind of deeper connection or even the stirring of of that wildness without your level of integration?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the major thrusts of my life's work is helping people, meeting people where they're at and drawing a little bit more of that out of them. I recognize that most people aren't going to go into the woods with limited tools in order to stay long-term. But if you can just learn a few patterns in the plant world so that when you're walking from your apartment to your car, you don't just see a wash of green, you notice, oh, the dandelions are starting to come up. Oh, that plant wasn't flowering last week. Hey, that one has leaves like this. That might be in the rose family. That is such a powerful thing. And it starts to draw some of those human senses and some of that ancestral knowing out of us, and we all have that within us. None of us would be here today if our ancestors hadn't known how to live and thrive in the wild world. It's what our nervous systems are geared towards, everything in our body is geared towards, so we all have it, and my work is about reminding people and and giving them tools to bring that out with the idea that it's important for us, that it actually makes us feel more whole and grounded and Healthy.
0: Mm. Uh, through your whole story it seems to to shout that the beginning of that process um, it doesn't actually take much. It just takes that mental shift, right? Mm-hmm. To to feel yeah. like you want to be desire to be uh, greater, more more connected to. Uh, the natural world around us in whatever shape it
1: might be hanging on, right? Exactly. Even in the middle of the city. Okay, yeah, so I I've ha- have a course called Connection is a Survival Skill that's actually an online course ah. so people can do it anywhere because we often think about you gotta know how to tie the knots and know how to build the shelter. Those are the survival skills. But to me, it's those, it's awakening those senses. It's that sense of connection and gratitude and surrender and trust. Those are the real survival skills. And those are things that we can do whether or not we ever set foot. In in the woods. Yeah.
0: And again, it's not just survival, right? You, you keep talking about thriving with mm-hmm. nature. Yeah. Um,
1: so I've been batting
0: this around in my head all show long. Um, sh- Bonia, should I tell uh, folks about you know, the fact that I'm taking Tim's classes?
1: <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> I guess It'd I just did. Same. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, I mean, look, I I grew up in in Oregon and played in the woods like every day of my life, camped, etc. But, you know, that's kind of more common. I I was never um, uh, exposed to wilderness or ancestral skills. So I want to just make that differentiation. But I've always loved being in nature. And recently... Um, I started taking wilderness skills classes here in Massachusetts from a really awesome guy, whom you know, Wonia, named uh, mm-hmm. Tim Swanson. And he runs a group called Owl Eyes Wilderness. Um, and uh, I've got two of his four feather patches. I'm still working on it, uh, Wonia. <laughs> but I, it, the uh, kinds of folks that these classes are now attracting is incredibly diverse from all walks of life. Has it always been like that, or do you think something has changed? in the past couple of years?
1: I mean, I think that absolutely the pandemic really changed people's attitudes and that existential fear, that idea that the stores might run out of food, the power might go down, you know, we might no longer have access to global food systems. I think that that really woke people up to the degree to which we are dependent on fallible systems. And the only thing that you can really rely on is the environment right around you and your own skill set. So I actually wasn't teaching online before the pandemic and I shifted to putting out online classes because I saw so many people panicking about realizing a need for these skills just at the time when I was no longer able to get out and teach them in person. So yeah, I think that All of us are now aware of the fragility of some of the systems we've relied on. We are really seeing global climate change now. It's no longer, you know, it's no longer something that most people are denying is happening. And we know that that's going to take another level of resilience Mm -hmm. to get through. So I think that there is a real growing awareness and interest in it. Yeah. And I think that that's really important. And it makes a big difference to me to be a part of that and be able to offer that in a lot of different ways to a lot of different types of people.
0: You know, the resilience that I need right now is I need some big time calluses on my palms to get those
1: friction fires. going. <laughs> it's true. Yes. <laughs> it's so and some hard. of those little muscles that we don't use in daily life that friction fire <laughs> requires.
0: I, yeah. I mean, like on TV, when you watch people do it, it's like, poof, there's a fire. But, right. But yeah. I'm, I have not gotten
1: one started yet kills my hands. I'm working on it. Yeah, they don't show all of the all of the months of blisters that people go through before their hands get tough enough for those. Yeah. I'm always carrying a ferro rod with me for the rest of my life. That's
0: that's all I have to say
1: about you that. You and me both. Yes. <laughs> Look at- I'm I'm all about the ferro rods. I I had never used one before alone. I was all about friction fire, but these days, I've got I've got a friction fire with or a ferro rod within arm's reach most of the time. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we've just got a minute, or actually less than a minute left, Vonia. I'd love you to leave us with a thought about even in the depths of some of your hardest moments in alone, you always seem to find a moment of beauty as well. Mm-hmm. And can you just quickly take us back to one of those moments where beauty yeah. beauty was the overriding experience, even as you were suffering.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the w- the weather in Labrador was truly brutal, and it it was a lot harder than I had expected going in, but something about being in such harsh conditions mean that every second of sunshine, right? Every moment that the clouds part for a second and reveal a rainbow, that has such more impact than it would be in clear, beautiful weather with easy conditions. So there's a gift in every challenge, and the degree to which we focus on those moments of beauty rather than on what we don't have, that absolutely transforms our lives.
0: Well, Vonia Thibault, she's the winner of Alone Frozen. She was also on Alone Season 6. She is an ancestral skills instructor. You can find her classes at Buckskin Revolution. And her new book is Never Alone, A Solo Arctic Survival Journey. Bonia, you're truly inspirational to me. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Magna. It was a delight.
0: And by the way, thank you to the History Channel for those audio excerpts from Alone. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.